the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another show of Behind the Headlines. Today is Sunday, February 26th. And joining me, co-hosts, we have here in the studio, Mr. William Barbet. Good afternoon. Harrison Coley. Hello. And with us from across the pond, we have Neil Bradley. Hi, and Joe Quinn. Hello. And I'll be your co-host, Elon Martin. And today's topic for our show, American coup d'etat, anti-Russian hysteria, global chaos, and the fourth turning. In the midst of the coup atmosphere currently gripping the U.S., a number of related stories reflect the American-generated chaos throughout the world. We've seen an uptick in Kiev's desperate war on the Donbass civilians, the untimely death of yet another veteran Russian ambassador, and the demonetization developments in India, among many other stories. All give a strong suggestion of where the elites would like to take things. How do these stories all fit together, and what are they a larger symptom of, is what we'll be examining today. We'll also be discussing a very interesting topic that's come to the attention of SOT editors, and that is the subject of Trump's chief strategist, Steve Bannon's uh, belief. Ah, there you go. Yay! <laughs> Steve Bannon has this idea of a fourth turning, and uh, and. It's got a number of implications um, regarding how uh, certain people view cycles in history uh, in the U.S., among other places. Um, so we'll be discussing that. Harrison has a recent focus piece uh, that, uh, that delves into the subject a bit. But first, I think we'll be getting into some uh, international news. And uh, where do we begin? So much as been happening in the just the past week, including a, an uptick in uh, the anti-Russia hysteria in the U.S., which feeds into the uh, American coup d'etat that we're seeing unfold against Trump at the moment. Anyone? Yeah, I want to start there. Um, is it really a coup d'etat we're witnessing here? A coup, you know, a coup d'etat. A coup d'etat is typically a military takeover. Planned in secret, and then it just it sprung on everyone overnight. Mm -hmm. Are we expecting we something say, like that? W w would it be fair to say that this is a kind of a slow motion coup d'état with elements of uh, of other influences, including the militaries, or maybe a civil war? Uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're not there yet. Um. I had a thought the uh, the other day that um, 
all these people talking, I mean, most of the <clears throat> alt-media, <clears throat> particularly the alt-right media, as it's called and since its recent invention, apparently. Um, Hillary Clinton was the first to give it that term, by the way. Yeah. So um, most of them are saying that, yeah, kind of what you were saying, Alan, that it's um, someone's trying to or someone's trying to get rid of, of Trump, you know, the deep state intel agencies, people behind the scenes who have kind of run U.S. foreign policy at the very least uh, mm-hmm. behind the scenes of every administration for, for quite a long time, for several decades, or, or certainly had a controlling interest or a controlling stake in, in, in the direction of a lot of policies that ostensibly came through the White House uh, or from Congress, but actually, you know, informed by someone else this deep state so it's, this uh, this so-called deep state is supposedly trying to unseat um, Trump trying to get rid of him because he's like the second coming of Jesus or something so uh, and they don't like Jesus so um, I'm not sure that's the case uh, or certainly um, it, it could seem that way uh, or it's possible that there's another agenda that involves them uh, going through the process of what looks like trying to uh, unseat Trump or get rid of Trump, uh, attacking him, having the media attack him. And it's interesting for me in a way that most of the media, particularly the kind of so-called leftist media, whatever, uh, that it's through this through the mainstream media that um, these attacks are coming at Trump because. Of course, we know that the media has served uh, a central role in the past and in, in decades and administrations gone by in the U.S. in particular and also in, in Europe. The media has served a central role in uh, propagandizing for the people who would, you know, have wage wars of aggression and invade other countries and lie to the public. And the media has, I mean, the most recent example, the biggest recent example would be the Iraq War, obviously, and the role the media played in selling that to the public on behalf of the uh, you know, military-industrial complex, if you want to call it that. So it's interesting that the media uh, is being used to attack, attack Trump uh, primarily, or their primary vehicle. Of course, there's a lot of politicians in on it as well, but uh, that was true for the Iraq War as well. There's a lot of politicians in on the propaganda for the Iraq War, along with the media. So... Um, that to me points at there, that it being true that there is some element of what you might call a quote unquote deep state intel agency types who think they are, and probably do run the country uh, largely that they are the ones um, who, who are attacking Trump in this way. But I'm not convinced that they want to actually get rid of him by by doing this, but rather that they they want to instead they. They're attempting to sway him or pressure him or push, do the same thing they've always done effectively, which is to control any administration and the direction it takes American domestic and foreign policy from behind the scenes. Uh, In the White House, executive branch is basically uh, the kind of front men are meant to play the role of the front men for an established long-term policy that goes back many decades and is, is fairly unchanging. In the broad strokes, uh, and these people want to basically get Trump and his his the people he's uh, gathered around him back in line and back on the same page as every other president of the U.S. 
Um, but at the same time, so they don't, I'm not sure that they intend to actually unseat him, but there may be an ulterior or a, a second motive or another agenda in that by, by pushing against Trump in this way that they are also increasing and, and, and having the media push the kind of you know anti-Trump stance and, uh, and and causing this reaction from the alt-right and stuff. They're, they're, whether intended or not, they're definitely dividing American society as a, in, in a very uh, overt way uh, that in a way, in a way that hasn't been divided before, uh, in, in such extremes, you know. Um, mm. So that in itself may be uh, an agenda of these people uh, of of harassing and haranguing Trump and stuff. They're just working up Trump supporters, making them feel threatened, pushing them into their into their further into their positions, you know. And you know, we know the idea of a strategy of tension type thing that has has been used in in countries to, to control uh, the, the political and social direction of a country and what people think and what people believe. Um, so it seems to me that there's a kind of strategy of tension to a certain extent being, being affected or being imposed on the American people by uh, this ridiculous, at this point, this ridiculous ongoing, uh, these ridiculous ongoing attacks on Trump's and the hysterical uh, allegations being made against him that he's, you know, a new Hitler and blah, blah, blah. Could there be a way that this is a a distraction for something that might be coming up in the future? Well, yeah, possibly. I mean, but then that's that's pretty, you have to get your crystal ball out to that one, you know? (laughs) More more like um, uh, sabotaging any efforts by Trump to get anything done. I mean, he's talked about leakers and people leaking stuff to the press and, you know, he's, a, he's, on, a, a, he's on a war fighting against these leakers mm-hmm. who are you know, scum of the earth and traitors. <clears throat> so we issued a memo this week uh, for the State Department, or I guess Tillerson did it, uh, on how to stop leaks <laughs> in the future. And someone leaks it to the press within... Like five hours. So, well, just getting back to to what Joe said for just a moment, like I would agree that there is the strategy of tension being um, implemented, and that ultimately it it would be easier to apply enough pressure to just get Trump to follow, you know, get with the program. Um, reading. All of these stories now about Trump, how Trump is um, going against the foreign policy uh, conventions that we've seen in the last 15 years, coming out against the uh, vaccination and and employing uh, Kennedy to to lead a group, uh, discussing ways of approaching the Fed. I feel like this guy is taking on so much that if he if he does follow his um, his campaign promises and his what he says he wants to do, that at some point this strategy of tension will only be plan A will get discarded and turn into a, a more violent plan B, if you will. Um, so they're trying this first. 
And, and my, my fear and concern, of course, is that it would turn into something else. Hmm. I think the important thing that we have to do here, just to clarify and, and for ourselves and our own minds, is we have to, we have to um, define what we're, what we're talking about, what, we're, you know, what our theory is, you know, what, what the theory is that we're discussing. And the theory here is that there is uh, some kind of, like I say, deep state a lot of people have talked about it. So this is a, a kind of backroom boys type uh, situation where you have people behind the scenes, you know, who knows who they are, but they're obviously in positions of power and have been for a long time. And, and they're the ones who direct government policy in their broad strokes and make sure nothing deviates too far from the way they want it to happen. And uh, in that scenario, if, assuming that's the case, if we, if we assume that's the case, that that's, that's what, what happens. And there's, there's reason to believe that something like that exists because if you look at, at least in the terms of foreign policy, if you look at the uh, foreign policy from uh, Bush, like from 9-11 basically until Obama, until until just this year, uh, it hasn't changed. You had Bush, this, you know, Republican, you know, whatever, right-wing, died-in-the-world Republican administration for eight years, and then you swung into a, a lefty, feel-good, charming, polished, shiny, happy, smiley Obama administration who was going to save the whole world, and foreign policy didn't change. In fact, it got worse. Obama continued the Bush era foreign policy, but actually made it worse. Um, so that suggests that, you know, obviously Bush himself didn't direct foreign policy, or, uh, you know, in any significant way, no president does, because most of them don't know you know, haven't paid much attention to, or didn't pay much attention in geography class and don't really know where places are in the world, so they're not going to decide where to bomb, like, you know. So somebody behind the scenes is making those decisions. Um, and it continued on between, as I said, from uh, eight years of Republicans to eight years of, of Democrats, nothing changed. So that suggests that there's an agenda behind the scenes that is beyond party politics. Uh, so assuming that's the case, there is a deep state, uh, we have to then question or wonder what is Trump doing that might be, well, first of all, what is the deep state agenda? And secondly, what is Trump doing that might be uh, at odds with the deep state agenda? To, and this would then, coming to the, going through those, that process, then we would be able to say whether or not there is any validity to the idea of some deep state trying to unseat Trump. Well, for the last several years, I think the one of the kind of most obvious um, aspects of that on the surface has been a distinctly anti-Russian um, mentality. And you can trace that back, well, you can trace that back to the end of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. But after the, the fall of the Soviet Union and dismemberment, then... You, you you know, just logically, you should have seen a change. I mean, Yeltsin comes into power and he's this, uh, you know, America file and Russia, the constitution is essentially written by Americans. <clears throat> Russia essentially becomes, in one sense or another, uh, you know, a kind of American vassal state that just proceeds to get torn apart and robbed. And so you'd think that if that had happened in the 90s, oh, well, there's no more communists, you know, we've got nothing to, to fight against anymore. Except, you know, it didn't work out that way. Um, after Yeltsin, Putin came into power and started this kind of, um, well, a, a policy similar to Trump's. You could, you could call it a Russia first policy. I mean, Putin and his administration and, you know, even Medvedev when he was president in the interim 
have kind of put Russia first as a sovereign state and attempted not to make it, um, you know, bow down to the will of the Americans. So that seemed to suggest that there was a something bigger than just the the anti-communism going on that Russia was still a target. And so when you when you look at those two periods of history and compare what's been similar to them, it looks like there has been this concerted effort to contain Russia or to either control or contain it or destroy it in the process. And this ties in with the the use of, you know, radical Islam in the in the eighties in Afghanistan and then in the nineties in Bosnia and it it has just continued on in Iraq. Right. Libya and Syria, mm-hmm. and it all seems it all seems to go to point in this certain direction, and that's at Russia. and And if you look at the 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 radical Islam element, that's Russia through Russia's um, you know Muslim majority parts, which are in the Caucasus, and and then in Central Asia and the ex Soviet republics there. So there seems to be this trajectory going in that direction right. for the last thirty years. Right. And so now you tie that into what we've seen for the past. Um, Primarily for the past three years, you know, since what's been going, since what happened in Ukraine, where the the anti-Putin, anti-Russian hysteria in the media has just gone over the top to the point where it's just it's so extreme. And, um, and you know, anything Putin does is evil. Anything evil that happens in the world is done by Putin. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's the that's the red line. That's the absolute, um, you know, policy must is to target Russia with anything and everything. Mm-hmm. And then you get Trump co- comes along and says, you know, we, sh- we should get along with Russia. What's so bad about that? Right. And even just saying that has, has put the crosshairs on him. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be to me, one of the, at least one of the most obvious um, things going on. Now there might be more and there might be more going on beneath the surface, but mm-hmm. I just wanted to throw that out there to, to start out with. Right. Well, that's, that's the main I think that's the main argument for there being uh, Russia, uh, Putin, or Trump being at odds with uh, some kind of a deep state, and the deep state here we define it as these uh, kind of the people behind the Cold War and the continuation of the Cold War, uh, which was just retooled into the War on Terror. Uh, people should realize, people should understand by now. We've written about it enough times that. Uh, the war on terror was just a, cont- a continuation of the Cold War, and the g- agenda of the Cold War was largely um, these people in America wanting the uh, people who saw themselves as the the rulers of the world, and you know, claiming the entire world for themselves. Uh, the Cold War was about resources, and uh, largely about resources, and uh, containing ev- any other country in the world that might uh, compete for American uh, preeminence in the world, and America as being the only superpower. And they continued that with the uh, uh, by segueing into the war on terror, which simply, which was simply nine eleven, which was a justification to put American troops into the Middle East and controlling the Middle East was about controlling resources. And particularly at that time in the nineties, these people seemed to have understood that Russia was possibly and, and further east into China was going. There was going to be a, a development of those countries as technology developed and spread into those countries, and those countries became more powerful uh, militarily and technologically. They were going to be uh, a threat to American preeminence, so they decided to uh, use 9-11 to <clears throat> go into uh, the, the strategic area of, of, of the world, Afghanistan and the Middle East in general, North Africa, other parts of Africa, uh, 
to control those resources and make sure that other countries like Russia and China did not, particularly Russia, given where it's situated on its size and its own resources, that it did not uh, find itself or did not uh, become a threat to to America. And that's been so that's been going on for like you know decades and decades. Um, so yeah, Trump going kind of any moves he might make to kind of pull back from that or try to do deals with Russia, it would, yeah, it would be a bit of a red flag to these people who have their entire lives have, have worked towards making sure that Russia stays down. Um, they're not doing a very good job of it, obviously. Uh, at this point, they've been, to a certain extent, outsmarted or outwitted or outgunned even by, by Russia and in alliance with the alliances Russia is making in the Middle East since it went into Syria with uh, Iran and other, you know, possible alliances. There are possibly with Turkey more recently, and obviously the, the Russian-Chinese alliance is, is a big threat to these people as well. So the question is, is Trump really serious about doing anything about that? Uh, in the sense of, is he backing off? Is he coming away? Is he trying to... And I mean, we talked about it last week, the way when Trump comes into power and he looks around and he's kind of inheriting this system, basically, that is America first and screw everybody else. Don't be friends with anybody. Screw everybody. Every other country that competes with us, as uh, in any way we can. Uh, he comes into, uh, you know, he becomes president, and he looks around and he says, "Well, I'm going to have to pull from the existing people in the exi- in the system." You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't come here with a few hundred people of my own. You know, I mean, I got to use the people in the think tanks and 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 etc. The various groups that exist in Washington. And he looks around and he's, he has an agenda. And he says to himself, well, who can I, who have I got here? Who can I pull from? Who, who's available and has the right uh, kind of mentality or approach or vision that would fit with my vision? And he says, uh, not many, you know, um, and he ends up having to pull, you know, dust-covered, crotchety old generals out of the closet, you know, <laughs> shove them into positions to say, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of funny in a certain sense, the way, and everybody, the whole system then, you know, the media, and a lot of the, the leftist, kind of the Clintonista kind of politicians who, and Clinton seemed to represent these people, because obviously Clinton was just a, a war harpy, she loved uh, invading uh, other countries, you know, and really had personal glee and satisfaction through, through leading the invasion and, and, and destruction of other countries, so she was certainly uh, one of them, and <clears throat> Uh, so he finds very few people that, that, that he can actually pull from and, and all of these people are against him, basically, and, and via the media are all against him. So, I mean, t- to that extent, I think it's reasonable enough to say that Trump is uh, under attack by a certain kind of deep state or a, an establishment group, overt and covert, effectively, elected and unelected individuals who, who represent that America first, America screws everybody else over and screw everybody else and dirty tricks are the, are, the, are the order of the day and invading countries and dominating countries and exporting American democracy, quote-unquote, and American corporations uh, around the world to maintain American hegemony. So... There's an irony here, I think, that um, the these guys and... Women too, for all we know. They, I think they bash Trump so much. If we're going with this angle, that particularly when it comes to Russia, Trump 
they're thinking Trump has to play ball. He has to. Um, there's an irony that Trump came to power at a time when I would say most Americans already saw through the propaganda about Russia because it was it's nearly what a good year and a half after Putin's intervention in Syria to, you know, to kick ISIS's ass, as Trump was saying. And I wonder if they, these guys are so deluded in their wishful thinking that they think that it's only now as a result of Trump that Americans think well of Russia and Putin. But they're so far gone in their wishful thinking, they didn't realize, no, Trump just arriving on the end of the wave. It's already there. People already see through the, the propaganda about Russia, for the most part, right? Let's, let's just assume that for a second. Yeah, although, and then Trump comes in and says, well, you know, they're doing a good thing. They're kicking ISIS butt. Mm. And, and they, they react to Trump as if he's just disclosing to the general American public for the first time that their lies may not be true. Mm. And they freak out without realizing there's no need to bash Trump on this particular issue because it's already, the scales have already fallen. Yeah, on, on the Russian issue, well, well they, they reckon they, that if they catapult the propaganda, if they uh, engage in enough anti-Russian propaganda, and we saw it over the past, the first couple of months of this year, where, you know, Russia was hacking our elections. I mean, is that going to go down in history now, that America, subver or Russia subverted, Putin himself subverted our wonderful uh, democratic institutions? I mean, he, he basically destroyed American democracy, and not only that, but he effectively stole the election for Donald Trump. He, he prevented a candidate, i.e. Hillary Clinton, who was who was going to win, he stopped her from winning. I mean, you can't get any more. I mean, you can't subvert a country's democracy any more than effectively pushing, uh, you know, an, an external country electing the 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 leader of, of of America, for example. You can't subvert its democracy any more than that. Of course, it's nonsense, you know. Um, but it's amazing that they're able to put that out there and who knows how many people actually believe that today you know certainly a lot of clinton mm -hmm. supporters probably really think that russia in some way or other uh you know swung the election for trump and he should not be the president the majority of them and they even went as far as to kind of uh, create the situation we think anyway where they could could put out the line that majority of american voters did not vote for trump you know that the majority of the people voted for for Clinton. So I mean, all of that says, yeah, whoever was behind that campaign, if it was, maybe you could say it was only the Clinton camp, you know. But I don't think so, you know, with the with the amount of media behind uh, that same story. But I mean, previous to that, um, we look at uh, Ukraine, and we the we remember the shootdown of M eight seventeen, you know, and. We wrote about that at the time, and that's a very suspicious, very strange event that was immediately, the day it happened, blamed on Putin. You know, Putin killed all those people, personally. Um, and that was, uh, I mean, these people just got screwed over. They invaded, they basically had a coup d'etat in Ukraine for one specific purpose, one major purpose, because they don't really want Ukraine. Not interested in Ukraine. It's a bit of a, a basket case, you know, Ukraine. Not not necessarily through any fault of other Ukrainian people, but or even the leaders that came beforehand, but Right now, it's a basket case because of the coup that was was um, affected by the by the um, the State Department, the U.S. State Department. But they did that for one specific reason, and it was to take uh, Crimea, and more particularly, 
the Russian Black Sea fleet, uh, their access to the Mediterranean, to the Black Sea, away from Russia. That was the only real... If that wasn't there as a motivating factor, they probably wouldn't have done it, in my opinion. They wanted to make sure that Russia did not have access to uh, the Black Sea and or, or to access to its, you know, its Black Sea fleet in uh, in Sevastopol. And yeah, so it all comes back. To, it all, I mean, all everything they've done over the past, everything that's happened, the major events that have happened on the geopolitical stage over the past, well, the past fifteen years, let's say since nine eleven, have been directed. Most of them have been directed at Russia in one way or another. Um. Yeah. Well, how about we, how about we, just shift topics a little bit by going to the recent news of Vitaly Cherkin's death? Because uh, there's been, you know, several articles in the alternative media pointing out that what there have been something like five high-level Russian diplomats that have died um, in the countries where they're serving for, in the last what, like several months. And so some people are saying, oh, well, you know, what's going on? Are these people being assassinated? Well, one obviously was assassinated. Uh, was it Karlov, the, the ambassador in Turkey, who was shot on camera in the back and murdered? Um, but then there, all these others, um, or most of these others, have been have seemingly died of just natural causes. And so Vitaly Cherkin was the latest. He's the UN. He was the UN ambassador for the last several years, like ten or more. And arguably he's done a good job. He seems like a good diplomat. And, um, you know, I enjoyed watching him. But what do we think about what's going on with that? Is it just, um, you know, a bunch of, bunch of old, uh, old diplomats just having to, you know, reach the end of their lives at the same time? Or something more sinister? What do you guys think? Well, th these were all diplomats and ambassadors who were uh, absolutely central and influential in their positions. Um, you know, you had this, uh, this other, uh, Alexander Katakin, who was an ambassador to India, who uh, was credited with having played a significant role in promoting Indian and Russian relations. Mm -hmm. um, so he's another one, even if he wasn't as high profile as, uh, as Cherkin. Um, and then the guy in Greece who was, I mean, Russia has been, let's say, closer to Greece since everything that's going, been on, everything that's been going on in Greece, um, you know, than, let's say, any other European country. So mm -hmm. there's that, too. Andre Malinin was his name. And he was another ambassador who, uh, who died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. He was just found dead on, on his bathroom floor in his apartment. Um, you know, after a while, it appears to be uh, a pattern. You know, we don't want to project or, or, or have a pattern recognition run amok in any sense, but uh, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to ignore that all of these voices uh, for Russia that were establishing relations with important um, uh, people in the world stage have been dropping like flies, mm -hmm. um, uh, particularly... Sorry, go on. What's uh, that? Finish. Go ahead and finish. Well, yeah. So, um, is it a pattern? Uh, it certainly appears that way. Um, what facts you know, do we have? How do they die? Well, we know that uh, Cherkin 
died of a heart attack or, or so it's, it's been said, but very little information has come out regarding his death. Um, but we also know it that it was a heart attack. Mm-hmm. It, it well, I don't even know if we know. I don't even know if we know that for sure because the Russians have, like, I think it was, um, um, what's her name, Zakharova, yeah. said, you know, chastised the the Western uh, media for and you know investigators for leaking information about the investigation, and that was, I, I'm pretty sure, one of those elements was the the cause of death that they related to the media uh-huh. because they wanted, you know, they wanted the body back to be able to do their own autopsy and. Uh, you know, they hadn't released any information. Right. So because the, the breaking news, the, the breaking news of Cherkin's death was that there may be cardiac trouble and then <coughs> nothing since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So unknown for Cherkin. Obviously, the, the guy in Istanbul was shot in front of everyone. What about the guy in Greece? He's found dead in his bathroom. Any update on that? Yeah. Oh, uh, no updates that I've read, um, but... <laughs> You know, it just one of the earlier statements said that, uh, you know, it was mysterious circumstances. Um, not well, actually, uh, appeared to have died from natural causes. What those natural causes may have been, we don't know. What age was he? Um, in Greece, don't know. I think he was younger. Yeah, I think Malinin was younger than uh, Cherkin and and Karlov, 50s then. Um, yeah. What, what about the guy in India? Uh, India, unspecified illness was how <laughs> they described it. It's all very vague. And the fifth one is not really, he's not really an ambassador. That was the head of RT, the guy who founded RT. But that was two years ago, wasn't yeah. it, in D.C.? It and was two years ago. Uh, he was, I think he was bludgeoned to death. Oh, yeah, right. that was another tricky one because right. they said that he was, you know, he was, he had this signs of, you know, blunt trauma or something, but they were saying he might've like maybe had a heart attack and fallen down the stairs or something like that. And then the, the FBI said there was no evidence of foul play after their investigation. So, mm-hmm. so has, has it been an official cause of death then? Not, uh, I'm not sure. I haven't seen an update about that one. I'd have to look hmm. that up. If they are being, you know, hit or targeted in some way, then the Russians are not making hay out of it. You know, they're not making a song and dance and saying this is dodgy. Right, but how could they? Right. Well, they couldn't. They can't. That's the that's the genius. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you take you take the whole assassination thing um, far enough, and the best assassination is one that you can't tell if the person died of natural causes or not. Right, so I mean, and if it, and then you have to question, you have to ask yourself, well, is that possible? Um, this is a spy versus spy. This is like two major powers in the world, extremely at odds with each other, and doing everything they can, particularly America, because it has most to lose. Uh, doing everything it can to maintain its position and and having no scruples. We were under no illusions that the people who who run the American deep state or the American state have any scruples about doing anything. I mean, we know that they, they, after 9-11 and launching their war on terror, within 10 years they've been, or probably less, they've been uh, siding with the terrorists that attacked us in 9-11. I mean, you can't get any more du- duplicitous and un- unscrupulous than that. So these people obviously have no morals and they will do anything. So the question then is, do they have a way to kill someone uh, without anybody knowing. Back in the 1970s, there was uh, the church committee uh, mm-hmm. that, 
I mean, there's a video of it, the guy holding up the gun and saying, so you're saying this gun can, you know, fire a dart and uh, so small it would leave a little pinprick or whatever, blah, 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 and, and it would be un undetectable. The person would, the poison, and, and the, uh, not only would it be undetectable that the person had been hit with anything, but in an autopsy it would be undetectable that they had been poisoned in the 1970s. Um, so assuming those kind of things are true, and then you put it in the, curtain, the, the modern context, the context of today where the U.S. is desperate to push back Russia. And imagine you're a person in the U.S. tasked with coming up with ideas about how you can hurt the Russians, how you can stop the Russians. Would it make sense and be uh, a good idea? Would it be, uh, would it be, would it be beneficial to America? to kill a bunch of ambassadors. Now, as Alan was saying, ambassadors in countries, the Russian ambassador, for example, to Greece or then into India, trying to other country, those people are the ones who lead the kind of diplomatic mission in that country and they set the policy and they establish uh, contacts and they're talking with a high level with members of those governments and, and yeah, so those guys are the point men who are uh, spreading or um, furthering Russian influence in different countries. If you were an American and you didn't like the kind of influence that the Russians were achieving in a certain country, well, yeah, an ambassador would be the one to take out. Not simply because he, he's established a lot of contacts and he's going, you know, he's going, he's pushing Russian interests at the expense, let's say, of American interests. But you also send a warning: who's going to replace those guys? If, if in the Kremlin, the word is getting around that these, this isn't a coincidence, that these guys were actually taken out, who's got their hand up to replace them? You want to do it? You want to take that job? If you were offered the Russian ambassador job to, to <laughs> Greece, Neil, would you would you take it? Da. You would straight away. Da. For the motherland. Yeah, that's the that's the Russian spirit. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking Pro of war. Russian spirit, that's 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 what I was thinking about in terms of motivation. I mean, you you would sap the spirits by doing this yeah. kind of thing. Um, yes. I suspect, and I know that the Turkish ambassador was former KGB. Uh, he used to be in North Korea. He was he he was top. I mean, he was the elite. You've got to remember that Putin himself was KGB Foreign Service. So he was basically one of these guys, although probably at a lower level, back in the eighties in East Germany. So I wonder to what extent these guys not just are part of the elite. But they are the same generation as Putin and probably worked with him, probably close to him. And this is a way of hurting him personally. Maybe. An idea. Although, I mean, well, when, just, you get, when you get down to the point where you're just pit, trying to piss someone off, you've kind of already lost, you know. You'd, you'd hope mm -hmm. that they're, maybe they're not, but you'd hope that they're, they're at the point where they still think they can achieve something strategically with these kind of things, you know, rather than just pissing people off, you know. Well, not not piss not piss them off and make them angry, but make them drain them of you know, make them that determination to okay. to to kind of do what they're trying to a do. A kind of demoralization. Yeah, it's it's the most demonic thing you can think of, really, because it's sapping the the goodwill, the spirit, the the drive to actually. Yeah, but then you would you would hope that the Russians were were kind of a bit more. Uh, I'm sure. made, a, made a stronger stuff oh, that. Sure. they've seen a lot of stuff maybe and engaged sure, in that kind of stuff themselves you know probably not unlimited though 
but they're not supermen. They're still human beings, you know? Yeah, well, yeah. Harrison, you were going to well, say that? After the... Sorry. Go ahead, Harrison. Yeah, just just uh, a couple things. One, it seems to me that, that uh, maybe part of the motivation for doing something like this, it's like, kind of like a, a grand demonic game of chicken um, where you, you kind of see the same thing in in Syria and in Ukraine, where it's just a constant series of provocations. It's like, it's just like poking a person trying to push their buttons. Mm -hmm. And I read one tweet, you know, from one Russian, so I can't say it's very representative, but it could be. And he essentially said, we all know what's going on, but we can't say anything because we don't want to start, you know, a world war. So essentially meaning that, um, you know, we, whoever, however many Russians that means, you know, can see that this is a concerted attack on, you know, Russian diplomats. But we can't say that in public because if we acknowledge that, then that's, you know, essentially a, a, it's almost like a, a cause for war. Mm. That, um, that Because apparently, you know, I've heard, I can't, you know, speak to the truth of it, but I've heard that during the Cold War, there was kind of an unwritten agreement between the Russians and the, and the Americans not to like assassinate each other's agents to a, to a large degree because they didn't want to escalate things in that way. And so if that's the case and this is happening, then it's like a, a major um, affront to even the, you know, the, the underworld of, of intelligence and assassinations and things like that, that the, these guys are going all out and just saying, oh, well, we're going to kill your people and what are yeah. you going to do about it? They've crossed the red line. Which, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Putin came out after the assassination of Andrei Karlov in Turkey uh, with a statement, you know, basically saying, you know, this is a this is a provocation just a day before, you know, we're going to meet with Erdogan and the leaders of Turkey mm -hmm. to discuss further um, uh, agreements that could be made. Uh, and, you know, assuming this uh, this assailant who killed Karlov was a Gulenist. Uh, you might as well say he's a, a CIAist, mm. uh, considering the amounts of support that uh, the the Gulen network um, and NATO network inside of uh, Turkey has received uh, from the CIA. Mm -hmm. um, so there is that, um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think the U.S. has Russia's number. They know that they don't want to escalate things. Russia has been very careful not to uh, take in uh, Eastern Ukraine, for instance. It hasn't, um, it hasn't showed uh, overt military support. It hasn't invaded uh, in the way that it's been accused of. Um, it's been very careful uh, to take measured steps in all directions so that um, it, it can't be accused of, of doing exactly what it's being accused of doing. Um, so we'll see. Uh, there, there was a statement made by another statement made by Putin some time ago. I think this was shortly after the um, the passenger plane went down in uh, in Egypt. Um, although it might have been at another time, when he basically said, uh, "You know, we we know who's perpetrating crimes against Russia, and you know when the time is right." will act in the appropriate way. Um, so I think that with a lot of forbearance, a lot of self-restraint, Russia is biding its time. It, it, it knows it can't act precipitously. It knows it can't act recklessly. 
uh, it is being the responsible um, party in this uh, in this horrible covert war and overt war that we're seeing waged against it. Yeah, and I wonder if what they're waiting for is some kind of change in the U.S. where these guys are in some way outed or ostracized. Um, basically, they end up becoming rogue elements in name and in practice. And you have, I don't know, something like regular U.S. forces loyal to Trump or rather to the generals in the Pentagon, you know, effectively coordinating actions with Russian special forces or military or whatever against this kind of rogue structure that's been in place for so long. That might be the kind of thing he's waiting for. He can't just do it alone. He would need to actually have help from at least one powerful Western partner. Mm-hmm. Speculating, but um, speaking of provocations, um, we've glossed over it. But um, well, the, the classic form in which this takes place, short of going to the new lows, if they are doing that, of directly killing their opponents' ambassadors, um, the Syrian government is trying to sit down with the opposition. In quotes, some of whom you know. <laughs> Not long ago, waving the black flag of the jihadi uh, wannabe caliphate, um, whether it's in Astana or now back in Geneva, and just before they're about to start again, six so-called suicide bombers killed at least fifty people in uh, in Homs, Syria, on Saturday. I mean, that's that's the kind of provocation that you know. The government forces are like, okay, we'll sit down and talk to you. And as they sit down, literally as they sit down at the table, mm. their colleagues are just blown up to pieces, 50 of them. Could have been much worse, apparently. Six simultaneous bombs went off. I mean, I don't know how that's suicide bombers, but anyway, that, that's how the Syrians themselves describe it. Um, killing, among many others, the Syrian army general, one of the most senior staff, uh, a guy called Hassan Dabul. And then Al-Nusra claims responsibility, whoever Al-Nusra is, whatever it is. Um, that's probably... Al-Nusra is basically Al-Qaeda, which, of course, is code for this rogue network. So uh, I suspect that's a deliberate provocation from... Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, who. I think it's an attempt to... Uh to do the same, to set Syria on the same course that uh, Iraq was set on as a result of um, American interference there. And as we know, Iraq, uh, well, regularly, it has never stopped getting, you know, suicide bombs or car bombs or whatever on a, on a weekly basis at the very least uh, forever now at this point. It may as well be forever. You know, it was obviously was happening during the... 10-year-long American occupation of the country, but then, since then, since 2011, let's say, the last five years, there's just been bombs going off, you know, on a very regular basis, killing dozens and dozens of people all the time, and, you know, so Iraq is continuing to be destabilized. There's, there's groups in Iraq has not, a, has not yet achieved <clears throat> the vaunted kind of freedom and democracy that was promised to it by the uh, American intervention, uh, intervention. and, of course, uh, 
there are still a large number of American troops and there are American military bases in Iraq. And of course, their presence there is probably justified by, well, the security situation in Iraq, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, the point is, Iraq was invaded because it was a stable, large, stable, oil-rich Middle Eastern country. Um, and it was destroyed to a large extent for that reason, because it, it was a, a large, independent, oil-rich Middle Eastern country. Uh, the last thing you want, the last thing the invaders of that country want is for Iraq to simply go back to being a large, rich, or oil-rich, independent Middle Eastern country. It can't be independent. It has to have American boots on the ground in perpetuity, effectively. And the best way to assure that, in the, in the short term anyway, is to make sure that uh, jihadis somehow flourish, continue to flourish in the country, you know. Um, and they do. So, of course, the best thing for Syria to keep Syria destabilized and try and force uh, a more, uh, 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 some kind of a future for Syria that's more to Western liking would be to keep the terror attacks taking over uh, on an ongoing basis, you know. Uh, you just, the last thing you want, the thing you have to avoid at all costs in those situations is any kind of peace and stability breaking out in the country. Sure, the government can reform and you can have. Assad still in power and stuff, but as long as there's regular terror attacks happening, well then, uh, things are still in play, effectively. Yeah, it seems to be working, because the Geneva Conference, after two, I think three days now, there's just, nothing has come out of it so far, they're at a deadlock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, um, go ahead, Alan. Well, we were um, we touched upon uh, the issues of Ukraine, um, and we've been talking a little bit about this kind of continuous provocation. Um, Ukraine, Kiev being a sort of semi-proxy force for the U.S. against uh, the culturally Russian side of Ukraine in, in Donbass. Um, they have completely ignored the Minsk II agreements, uh, there's been an uptick in, in shelling uh, against Eastern Ukrainians, soldiers, infrastructure in uh, in recent days and weeks. Yeah, just a couple of days ago, the Kiev's troops took control of the water treatment facility going into Donetsk. And there are reports that the essentially hinting at the fact that they turned off, basically turned off the filtration system. So all the water getting pumped into the city is... Um, just dirty and um, you know so they're relying on uh, distilled water and you know water stored that, they, that they've got but um, I mean and that's I mean which is exactly what ISIS me. did in Damascus exactly yeah I was just going to say that and then you have the coal trains too being all backed up that from Donbass to Kiev mm-hmm. yeah, talk, long, about long line. talk about shooting yourself in the foot that's the nut jobs in, in, in Kiev refusing to accept uh, the country's primary fuel source, coal, which is the country for for their power, for their electricity power plants and stuff, that run them, and they're going to have to have uh, kind of rolling kind of blackouts in certain areas because they won't accept Donbas coal because it's well on principle, you know. Well, I mean that's why I say the the country uh, uh, as it's been remade in America's image with American puppet uh, government, the country is a, a basket case, and it's America's fault. 
And just a couple interesting things, uh, just items of note about what, what's what's her name? Is it Nadia or Natalia Savchenko? Savchenko, yes. And she's been in the news, you know, several times, you know, over the past year after she was released from from Russian prison. <laughs> and um, just in the last week, she did two interesting things. First, she um, she kind of renounced her parliamentary um, immunity um, because she saw it. Well, she saw it as this kind of uh, invitation to corruption, and she called on everyone else to do the same thing, which, of course, they won't. But she also um, made a trip to the Donbass to negotiate and talk with with um, with the you know militia leaders there and the government to um, ne- you know negotiate prisoner of war exchanges. So it's very interesting that that Savchenko, who was just you know, if you saw her videos of her a year ago, she just seemed like this totally insane person. And she's actually like seems like the most sane one of the bunch that's actually talking about you know she seems to actually care about about Ukrainians and wants to end the war and um, you know if that means talking to the you know people in Donetsk and Lugansk then she'll do it and she's just getting you know a ton of of criticism from everyone in Kiev for doing these things when she seems like you know maybe the actual Ukraine Ukrainian patriot of the bunch. It's funny she keeps stirring up that hornet's nest in Kiev, and it's just looking back, it looks like Putin made a great move in letting her go back to Kiev. <laughs> and she seems to be capitalizing on every ounce of of uh, heroism that she's earned this reputation for. Uh, you know, she was welcomed back, you know, heroes welcome, yeah. <laughs> billboards. So she knows that in the eyes of uh, many Ukrainians, she's an extremely brave uh, patriot, um, and look what she's doing with with that reputation. Uh, but, but so you, it is really. You're, you're saying she's story. doing sensible things, though, right? She yeah. Yes. Crazy yes. things. So she's doing sensible things. Well, except maybe, she maybe did the Russians that if that, that that if you want Donbass, you need to just give up on Crimea. You know, which that's kind of controversial. Say again. She said, "What if you want Donbass?" You need she to give said, up. "Yeah, if, yeah, you need to just give up on Crimea." So that's actually. Um, Hang on a second. That's actually a position that not even the Americans would take. No, no. Right. Well, obviously. Wow. I mean, maybe the Russians beat some sense into her when she was in prison. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's probably programming. That, yeah, exactly. That's she's what some are saying. She's going to be. She's a Manchurian candidate. Exactly. She's Putin's agent. Putin. Yeah. Brainwashed her. Is she getting attacked with that in Kiev? Because that's pretty controversial yeah. to say. Oh, yeah. She yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Oh, intriguing. Um, did you see what the, the Russians started to do? I mean, they, they they basically are hands off when it comes to Donbass, but they made a, an official announcement that they would mm-hmm. begin recognizing official documentation from the Donbass. So passports, driver's license, everything from college diplomas. Um, yeah, to allow the visa-free travel. Right, into Russia. Mm-hmm which is sort of a de facto recognizing the independence of. Mm-hmm. But then did, did you hear Lavrov's response after, you know, everyone in the West was saying, oh, my God, how could you do this? He said, well, you guys realize that you did recognize Donetsk and Lugansk by having the Minsk talks with them, right? So, like, you guys did it first, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's go back to... Uh... Let's go back to Trump uh, and 
I'll introduce. Uh, we can we can talk a little bit about the uh, about Bannon, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, and uh, the fourth turning, and that kind of thing. But um, what what that means, what the supposed or um, assumed ideology that's driving the Trump White House, and and like we were saying before, why it might be at odds with uh, kind of deep state motivations. But it, um, there was a story <clears throat> recently, I think it's just from today actually, that um, there's these, this group of people, uh, a couple of guys in the US who make uh, board games. And they have a board game called, um, what's it called again? Uh, Secret Hitler. Uh, and you, uh, you basically, players in the board game, <clears throat> some of them are, and lefties, and some of them are fascists, and, and one of them is Hitler, and you have to, in some way or other, figure out who Hitler is, and, and you make decisions based on your ideologies and stuff, and you either win or lose, depending on what happens. Anyway, the, apparently 100 senators were sent uh, a letter along with one of uh, one of these board games to them. Um, the uh, And in the letter from the makers of this board game, they, they said um, to these senators... Uh, to achieve his evil ends, Adolf Hitler required the cooperation of well-meaning men who hoped to appease and control the Nazis. Our game explores that relationship and highlights the difficulty of recognizing your own manipulation before it's too late. <clears throat> Although our game takes place in 1933 in Germany, we thought you and your staff would find our game relevant as you negotiate the balance of power within the Trump White House. And they finish by saying the legislative branch plays an essential role in a stable, functioning democracy now more than ever. The Senate, so the senators have been put on notice that Hitler is in the White House by a couple of guys who make a board game uh, called Secret Hitler. That's some great marketing right there. Yeah, they're probably uh, their, their game's going to probably sell millions now. But um, yeah, it's just part of this whole... Uh, Trump's Hitler business, you know, uh, which leads us into this, our, um, our, our next discussion, I suppose, of, of an article you wrote recently, Harrison, that has uh, two more parts coming, second one coming tomorrow, mm -hmm. I believe, uh, mm -hmm. on, on Steve Bannon, this guy who came out of nowhere, became Trump's chief strategist, has his ear, he's the eminent squeeze behind the, the golden orange colored throne or the orange hair, whispering sweet nothings into Trump's ear and directing the course of, uh, or directing Trump's ideology, the Trump administration's ideology. And part of it involves this idea of a fourth turning. Mm -hmm. What's it all about, Harrison? Well, I'd never heard of the fourth turning. Like I said in my article, before um, all these articles about Bannon in February, like beginning of this month. And so, you know, I checked it out saw a few videos of him, read a few things about what he said about it, and then just, um, you know, I haven't read the book yet by Howe and Strauss, um, but I, I will check it out. I've just been looking on about, you know, the overviews of their theory and what it kind of all means. And because apparently Bannon is, you know, likes their ideas and presumably is planning his strategy, you know, with this understanding um, in mind. So, you know, it would, be, it would benefit to know what he's looking at to maybe get an idea of what he's thinking. 
And the basic idea about this fourth turning is it's it's pretty simple, actually. Um, you know, you can get really complex when you actually look at the book and all the details. But overall, it's basically um, this idea that's been around for, you know, since the Greeks that societies, cultures go through this kind of um, season of generations. So it's pretty much the, the life cycle of, of a generation of, of people, which is usually around 80 years. So this will be the time from, you know, when one generation is born until all the, everyone in that generation is, is dead. And, you know, it's kind of like a, a total um, switching out of the population in, in, a, in a given society. And so within that, those 80 years or so, there, there are, it kind of works out to be um, four, uh, four divisions of that big cycle as new generations are born. And we see this in, in, you know, we categorize generations in a similar way, just seemingly naturally. So, for example, we had the baby boomers and then Generation X and then the millennials. And now, you know, everyone born in the last like 10, 15 years is they don't have a, a real established name yet, but they're just be, being called Generation uh, Z or Z. So, and there are certain, you know, each generation tends to have a certain kind of uh, trend to it that is uh, a reaction to the previous generation. It seems that, like, you know, a generation tends to react to their, to you know, their parents and the the society they find themselves in a in, in a somewhat predictable way. And so the um, How and Strauss call these um, these kind of periods of history, these twenty year periods of history, um, uh, turnings. So it's, and looking primarily at American history, but, you know, looking at other countries too, you can, you can kind of see that they, they seem to have a point where there seems to be um, a cycle where every 80 years or so there's a crisis. And this is some kind of, you know, major national um, crisis. It could be economic or military or, um, you know, institutional that, that happens. And then after that crisis, societies tend to rebuild. And so that's the first turning is this rebuilding phase where there's this this um, kind of collective movement where p people are in general kind of unified and come together to to kind of rebuild uh, the rebuild the country to kind of re uh, reinvigorate institutions and institute new policies and kind of you know turn things around. So in America, the last first turning would have been after the. Um, the period of the 30s and 40s, which was the Great Depression and the Second World War. So in the you know late 40s, 50s, this was kind of this this um, um, period of of you know, reconstituting American society after after this crisis. And then you know after that happens, you've got that you know that 20 years of this collective high uh, of of people kind of coming together and agreeing with each other. But then the next generation kind of reacts to that and they, and they see it as this kind of conformist, you know, it's too kind of conservative, too, um, too, too collective. And then that's where you get this outbreak of more individualism and they call this an awakening. So this is where people kind of, um, the, you know, this new generation kind of uh, rebels against the, the old order. And this was like the sixties and seventies where you had the, the consciousness revolution. And after, so this is what, you know, by, by 40 years after the last crisis, the, the, you've, you've got, you know, two generations, generations of people who have grown up without, um, experiencing this kind of national crisis. Um, and so if you look at kind of the, the upper class, at least the, the, you know, middle to upper class people, they've, they've had a pretty good life. 
and people tend to get complacent. So in the third turning, you, you have this kind of stagnation where people are just kind of living off what they've built for the past 40 years and not introducing anything new. And so that's where you get another reaction. You get a reaction against the, the institutions that have become fossils and um, just kind of going by, by inertia. And in the U.S., this would have been the 80s and 90s where things are it's, things just you know carry on but there's nothing new um things kind of decay and um you know corruption gets worse and this essentially sets up the the internal um atmosphere for another crisis and that next crisis comes in the fourth turning and this is at a point where pretty much everyone who's lived through the 30s is dead or you know retired you know in a in an old folks home um, these are the people, you know, our grandparents that we ignore, you know, don't really listen to. They don't have much influence on public life anymore. So we've got these three generations now of people who have just been kind of living the high life. And this is primarily, I'd say, in the um, like the ruling classes and, the you know, like I said, upper middle, upper classes. So they, they're kind of unprepared. And that's when it tend, there's this, you know, just this mentality among these, the, this new generation, um, well, new and old generation, who are just not only unprepared for, for a crisis, but unintentionally, to a large degree, bringing it on. Because they haven't, um, you know, they've lost that kind of urgency to, 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 to see what needs to be done to, to prevent a new one. Because, you know, in their minds, it's just, you know, this is, life's been great pretty much, you know, for the last 60 years. So, you know, I guess they just think it's going to continue on doing, continue on being great, um, but it's not. And that tends to be the pattern where every 80 years or so you have this kind of um, crisis. So Steve Bannon, being a proponent of this, um, this idea, sees that um, the current climate of the u.s is a crisis climate that there is going to be well that there the, the u.s is going through a crisis and um how at least one of the authors because strauss died um several years ago how says that the the crisis started in 2008 um you know with the with the market crashing and that 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 just means you know for the next let's say you know 10 years we're going to the u.s is going to be, continue to be in a crisis and from the, from some of the things Bannon has said, um, you know, at least a year or two ago, he was saying that he he saw um, a major war as being, you know, inevitable. That this is going to happen. You know, we're going to have we're going to see war with China, and um, you know, there's going to be this kind of clash of civilizations that where we we see the same kind of ideas coming from him about this this clash between the the Western Judeo Christian world and um, you know, the East, whether, whether we think about that in terms of Islam or, um, you know, I don't know how far Bannon goes. I haven't seen him, you know, really go into it in depth, but, um, you know, with mention of China, you could see him seeing that as an issue too. So that's kind of the, the theory in a nutshell. And, um, like there's this one interview that I included in the, the first part of the article, um, where, Bannon actually he made a uh, a documentary about this. Um, I don't remember the the name of the documentary at the top of my head. Something about generation generation Z. Kind of generation. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And generation so zero. he was in generation zero. That's it. So he was interviewing a bunch of people, and he he was inter interviewing this one guy, um, 
who kind of, you know, shared some similar ideas, but um, the guy related his, his conversations that he had while filming this. Um, he said he remembered, you know, distinctly these two parts because he wanted to make two points to, to Bannon. And the first was that, well, you know, the crises, these crises aren't necessarily, you know, good things come afterwards. I mean, if you look at what happened in, you know, in France after the French Revolution, it was a reign of terror. And you look at what happened with the Soviets um, in Russia in the, you know, early part of the 20th century, they were reigns of terror. And so he said that Bannon actually put those lines in, but um, Bannon was actually pushing him and trying to get him to say that a, a, a war was inevitable, you know, a big war was in, inevitable. And this guy wouldn't say it. He's like, well, no, because I don't, you know, I don't believe that. And so um, Bannon didn't include that in the in the documentary. So at least, um, you know, as, as I said in the article, that's it's concerning, um, at least from from one perspective, because if Bannon truly believes this, um, he could see like one way of looking at this is he could see himself as like the the guy that will um, help kind of steer the American ship through this coming crisis. Um, and if he, if he thinks he knows exactly how this crisis is going to, if he thinks he knows how this crisis is going to play out, then, you know, he may almost unintentionally or even intentionally be bringing about certain aspects of this crisis, whether it's war or who knows what else. And, so from his point of view, you know, I can't get into his head, so I don't know what he's actually thinking, but um, there's the, you know, that's a, that's a possibility that he may see himself as the guy to, to kind of um, manage the crisis and to kind of steer the crisis because he wants to be, uh, he wants to make sure that America rebuilds the way he sees, uh, that, you know, what he sees as the best way to rebuild. So there's that to consider. Now, in the article, you know, because I don't know exactly what he's thinking, just, you know, to play devil's advocate, um, it could be that Bannon just um, sees that there's a crisis. It could even be that, you know, he's just, uh, I mean, he's making documentary films. He want, he's he got a, an agenda. Uh, you know, every filmmaker has an agenda, wants to push a, across a certain message. doesn't necessarily mean that they, they, that they totally believe it or that they're, you know, that their motivations on the surface are the same as those underneath. So, because if, if you look at um, the, the climate in America in 2014, for example, 2015, I mean, no one would predict that, uh, that Trump would become, the, become president or that, you know, I, I doubt Bannon would predict that he would have any kind of influence over the next two years um, or, you know, longer. So he might have been just putting forth these ideas because he was looking at the trend of what was going on. And I mean, with Hillary Clinton, we would just, we would, you know, definitely have more war, maybe not a, a world war like he was kind of predicting. But um, I mean, the trend really was there, you know, up until the election of last year um, for a lot of people, you know, it's if, um, you know, he might've just been seeing these trends. So, you know, I can't, I can't say what Bannon is thinking now. And, um, you know, now that he's, you know, he's in a place of, you know, pretty big influence with, with president Trump, who knows? So, so maybe I'll just, you know, stop there for now and see what you guys think of that. And maybe we can go into a bit more detail after that. But everybody needs an ideology, no? Yeah. Some, but, um, but I'd say just, just really quickly that, um, you know, not, not all ideologies are created equal. Mm -hmm. Um, but we could we could get into that. That's a that's a whole other topic. Well, 
I mean, you mentioned the idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, essentially, mm-hmm. where he would, you know, take actions. If, he, if someone starts with a belief, I mean, this, this comes, goes down to our, our, our average, the average person's daily life type of thing. If you're walking around with a belief about something, about the world, about life, about some event that's, uh, that's coming up or whatever, that shapes how you... Uh, interact with that event or how you how you act towards it and, and the, the things you do and um mm-hmm. and that that can shape and, and change the outcome as well so uh, definitely that's why i think that's why ideologies generally speaking are um and ideologies by definition are kind of limited they're just they're a, a singular view of something that almost and always uh, excludes other parts of reality and um yeah. when when you're fi- fixated on a on an ideology like that, um, you you kind of have to, and if you really believe it, you kind of really do end up in some way or other making it come about. If you really believe strongly, this is what's going to happen. This is where we are right now. These are the factors that are in play right now, and we have to take action based on our belief that these are the factors that are in play, and this is what they mean. And this is what's going to happen, and this is what we have to do. Well, then, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna create a certain reality, you know. But mm-hmm. I mean, if if Bannon and I think there's some evidence suggests that Bannon and Trump uh, people around Trump or whatever have the idea of uh, or ask, uh, subscribe to the idea of a kind of clash of civilizations that Islamic terrorism is a problem and and Islam and the West uh, are not compatible. That that's an issue. That's a problem. If they believe those things. And they take actions based on them. And of course, some people would say that Trump's uh, immigration ban was was part of their belief, an example of their belief that that uh, that this is a problem. You know, Muslim immigration from certain countries into the U.S. is a problem. Therefore, Islam is a problem. Uh, the you know the beliefs inherent in Islam and that people who practice Islam, people Muslims uh, are not really if especially if they're if they hold strong beliefs that they're not compatible with Western society, their issues, let's do something about it. Um, mm-hmm. But if he he looks at that now and says those those are the facts uh, on the ground right now, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, if you don't look at where they came from, <clears throat> and if you don't consider <clears throat> that the current status quo uh, doesn't necessarily have to be that way if you allow for the idea that it was actually manipulated uh, and is actually, you know, ongoing. That, in the, to the extent that you are plan that you may end up planning to, um, or that you may end up creating, being involved in a self fulfilling prophecy where you actually create the conditions that you say are going to happen. Uh, you should always consider whether or not the conditions that you inherited. Are the conditions that prevail when you when you first get into a position of power? How much were they mm-hmm. uh, part of a self fulfilling prophecy, and therefore not mm-hmm. strictly true? Don't have to be. Is there a way to change mm-hmm. them? Is there a way to turn it around and undo that kind of the reality creation that people like Karl Rove in the Bush era uh, engaged in? You know, were mm-hmm. they were they? I mean, by definition, they had to. For them to invade the Middle East, for them to have a war on terror, there had to be terrorism. And then we look at the evidence mm-hmm. for the, the U.S. involvement in creating and funding and training terrorist groups. I mean, it's really easy to be right every time if you have the ability to actually create the conditions that prove that you're right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if I mm-hmm. if I go around in my neighborhood saying that my neighbor 
is a really, really bad person. And I go on about that for for days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, well, if the person is, if my neighbour isn't actually a bad person, I'm not going to get very far. Because the other neighbours are going to go, well, what are you talking about? We don't really see him that way. But if I go and set him up to make it look like he committed a crime, and then, you know, and do that a few times, let's say, well, then my allegations start to hold true, right? Um, but of course the problem here is that if you if you let that go for long enough, if you allow people to do that for long enough, they can actually create a reality on the ground. I mean, I can torment my neighbour, a good person originally, to the point that he starts behaving in uh, aggressive and psychotic ways because I've messed with his head. And then someone comes along and looks at my neighbour and says, yeah, he's a nut job. You better do something about him. At that point, it's not so easy to say, let's reverse it, let's change everything because you have actually created a reality that it's not really changeable, not certainly not changeable uh, easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just on that point, does I mean I think it's true that Bannon does Bannon, and you know certainly the generals and stuff have spoken about it around Trump. But Bannon holds this idea of a clash of civilizations right between Islam and and the West, right? Well, as far as I can tell, you know, I haven't uh, I haven't seen him go too much in depth into it, mm. so. I can't say for sure. Yeah. I don't know if it's any indication or not, but there was a, a recent story of how uh, the the Trump White House uh, ordered the CIA to stop uh, some kind of either logistical or, or monetary support of the uh, Free Syria Army. Free Syrian Army, yeah. Mm. Uh, so it, uh, that could just be one indication of the sincerity uh, that uh, uh, with which Trump is... Um, has been stating that he he doesn't uh, want to support um, mm. the the Syrian war or, or any of the the factions there, and he does want to fight ISIS and and bring some kind of peaceful resolution to the problem. Mm. Now, how that connects to Bannon? Bannon is, you know, as you said, Harrison is his, his chief strategist, uh, which means that he would have to be on board. Uh, with with that sort of uh, intention and 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 strategy, um, but you know there are all sorts of ways that uh, that he can be subverting that that very um, that very idea, uh, especially if he thinks that um, that that there will be uh, this crisis that he has to manage somehow. And and I guess the question becomes, you know, how 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 may he be responsible for actually bringing about a crisis um, without his even realizing it because he believes that there requires one in order to build things anew. Mm-hmm. That seems to be one of the central questions. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of things here. First, I just want to say that to me, Trump doesn't strike me as being very ideological. I mean, he strikes me as more of this practical guy that, um, <clears throat> that will, Maybe like, you know, take elements of someone else's ideology. And you can just see this in his speeches, you know, where he talks about just America and the idea of America. And but when it comes down to it, at the very least, you know, Trump, you know, ignoring everyone else that he's connected with just seems to be this practical guy, um, which can be, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean he's a, a great guy or that all his policies will be great, but that um that he, you know, he wouldn't go kind of like the the full Hitler or the full Bolshevik, um, 
you know, using this ideology to using, you know, using an ideology to kind of take it to this caricature dimension where, for example, you know, all all Muslims would be rounded up. You know, we'd be at war with every every Muslim country. I mean, he seems to be practical to the point where just like his generals were. I mean, his generals, you know, even ignoring any possible, um, let's say, anti-Islam um, sentiments they have or even racism. I mean, the generals still work with Iraqis, um, you know, on the ground. They coordinate with them. They work together. Right. There's this there is a kind of uh, and I mean, just look at the, the Americans and the Saudis. I mean, even then, even if the American, even if certain Americans, you know, loathe the Saudis, they're willing to work with them for for a mutual benefit. So there's there's it's a it's a complex situation where it's you know, it's not as it does. It's it, at least at this point, it's not like we've got these, uh, um, you know, Bolsheviks who are, you know, against, um, you know, all the bourgeoisie, no matter who they are, or what they do. It's, uh, you know, you don't have that kind of extreme black and white um, um, sentiment going on, you know, at the policy level. Of course, you see you see that coming out in the at the grassroots level and the reactions of people. You know, you just have to read YouTube and Twitter to see how how black and white they've become, um, you know, how, you know, literally anti-Islam they are. Um, but the, well, there's that to consider. There's also the um, the idea. So, well. The reason I say that is just because. So even if Bannon is this ideological guy, then you've got then you've got to get in the situation of Trump and Bannon. So how much influence would Bannon have over Trump, and how much would Trump just be you know using Bannon wherever he sees Bannon's ideas as practical to reach his own ends? Um, in that sense, you know, Trump might be the the kind of um, the the moderate that is kind of negotiating um, you know ideas between the the you know the extremes on either side and you, you see the same thing with with putin and russia you know you ask a lot of russians and they'll say well you know what you guys don't you know the west doesn't like putin well he's the moderate you know if if you got rid of putin you you we've got some crazy russians over here and if you put them in you know they'd be you know you really wouldn't like them because yeah. you know these are the guys, these are the guys in russia that are like okay bring it on we'll go to war with the states we should be you know more aggressive with you guys mm. so um so that that places Trump, if that's correct, that places Trump in an interesting position. Mm. Um, but then, the, but let's just say for you know for argument's sake that we go, you know, that that Bannon has this ideology and he takes it as far as he can go. Well, that's the kind of ironic thing that that he he'd essentially be taking um, America in the direct, you know, just a horrible direction that he probably has no idea that's where it's going to. It would almost be like uh, like this Marxist idea of you know the the um you know the push of of history the in, the inevitable um you know historical dialectic where um things are going to happen it's it's you know it's it's deterministic it's uh unstoppable mm -hmm. and therefore we are going to be the agents that bring that about it's kind of mm -hmm. it's paradoxical because you know marxists mm -hmm. will will kind of deny human free will but then they will um um kind of support or um, will adopt their own free will to then bring it about. So the, the, that was the justification that the you know the Soviets and the Bolsheviks would Bolsheviks would bring would bring forth to justify you know any horrible thing they'd do. They just they just say oh well it's just history you know this is just the way it works and you know if we have to kill a few million people to do it that's just um, you know it's just what what has to happen. Yeah. So you could see the same thing happening. That's an interesting example, uh, Harrison. 
I would add that it's um, a paradox at the heart of ooh, every single ideology I've read so far um, that you know goes together to create what we call the West today. It's as old as a millennium. Um, the idea of a civilizing mission. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, is a two things simultaneously. At once, it's a description of the reality as it is. And at the same time, it's an evaluation, a judgment on how it ought to be mm-hmm. to justify the reasons why it is as it is. Um, so it's not just a Marxist thing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's very common. Uh, in centuries past, they say, well, you know, people would... You know, people of sound mind back then, dissidents, that's called them, would say, you know, you shouldn't really be treating the natives like that. And they'd say, we agree with you. It's it's unfair. It's it's harsh, and we we shouldn't be treating them like that. But you know, given that we are more intelligent than them and more we're superior, we do have to interfere with their lives on a nonstop basis in order to bring them up to our level of. Uh, Superiority, yeah. um, so it's, it's very, very common. It's, it's not just something that, although no. uh, Marxism and what came out of it, communism in Russia, is, is, is a good recent example to show how crazy it can get. Um, the the thing with the thing with this is that, unfortunately, the problem with, when someone puts their finger on the pulse, as I think Bannon has more or less done, they they become a lightning rod for uh, the scapegoat, for, for why it went wrong. As Bannon points mm-hmm. out, he's, he's, and he's, he's only carrying the message of two other guys who wrote a book. But the, mm-hmm. the point was that this crisis is halfway through that 20 years already. It began in 2008. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that Bannon's bringing it on. He's, no. he's pointing out a reality. This is a positive development for American elites for American period he's acknowledging that there's a crisis yeah. that is such a contrast with the la-di-da liberal everything's awesome Obama's one of his, Obama's last speeches was the world has never been so peaceful and mm. so prosperous mm. we brought it to the pinnacle and everyone around has got like jaws dropping going are you freaking kidding there's chaos everywhere what have you done and of course that would be you know water off ducks back to Obama because he would have no consideration for his negative role in facilitating that. Mm-hmm. At I, least Bannon steps in here and says, we've got a crisis. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's maybe in, in, in broad terms what we can say is that with Trump coming along, that the clash that we're seeing now between Trump and the, uh, the people who are attacking him is a kind of a clash between the reality-based community and the reality creators. That mm-hmm. uh, were represented by the Bush era and the, the neoconservatives, and then under Obama, that neoliberalism. Uh, these people, as Neil was just saying, are the ones who thought that everything was wonderful. What they did, everything, no matter what they did, everything was wonderful. Everything was getting better. Freedom and democracy for everybody. When in reality, it, it was exactly the opposite, <clears throat> and it's created a, a, a terrible, it's created a lot of chaos and suffering, and. and uh, a really messed up world, basically, and so Trump coming along, and the people around him are, are people who are more and more in in line and more inclined towards the kind of reality based community, and say, saying, you know, uh, hang on a minute, there's some serious issues here, you know, kind of 
have to slap the liberals around the face a few times and the neoconservatives as well and say, you know, wake up to what's going on. You know, I mean, stop living in a dream world. You just can't go along creating uh, just because you say it so that doesn't make it so. And even if you say it so and then kind of take some action based on it, you're not going to be able to create this this dream world where America, exceptional America reigns supreme forever and nothing bad happens as a result, you know, that ultimately there is going to be some serious crisis that you're going to precipitate. And this is what Bannon and, and, and Trump and stuff are, that's the, the line they're on basically, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and that clash between reality-based community uh, and the reality creators, that was Carl Rove's actual words, you know, he said to Ron Suskin, the, the, the the journalist in the US he said that he said that you Ron Suskin the journalists and people like you and the American people are members of the reality based community you just observe reality and look around and say oh this is this and this you know, here's a problem here's not a problem whatever you tend to actually observe observe the reality and, and assign a meaning to it he said but that's not the way it works we are the reality creators you know and we having with the power that we have are able to basically make shit up as we go along and make it a fact on the ground. And then you have to try and figure out what's going on because you think that reality evolves kind of from cause and effect. No, it's we just make shit up in our heads, decide what should be, and then you know work behind the scenes with our military or with our intel agencies or whatever to make that a reality. And it could be anything we imagine. But of course that's mm-hmm. a complete illusion because it doesn't take stock of the fact that there is an actual reality that... that, that uh, interacts back with you you can't just go and project it all outwards and, and have it maintain itself forever it's it, you're going to have an effect there is cause and effect and <clears throat> it's almost like the people who voted for trump and i think the majority of the american people are the people who were able to see that and didn't uh, saw that things were going wrong as much as they may mm-hmm. have liked to believe in american freedom and democracy and america's the greatest nation they saw that it wasn't not only in foreign policy maybe to a less even to a a lesser degree in terms of foreign policy, but at home in America, things have been de- degrading increasingly for a large section of the population. And they're the ones who are going, well, you know what, if you guys, if you, Carl Rove and Bush and Obama, the reality creators, we don't like it. We don't like the reality you're creating. Even though you tell us that trickle-down is going to solve all our problems, it's not. You know, those are the people who, to the extent that it's possible, in America or in the West or even in the world in general, the extent, uh, those are the people who who still maintain some ability to actually observe reality and not live in a dream world uh, where anything they imagine themselves to be or the world to be or life to be or reality to be was the way it is. That's okay for people who live in ivory towers and stuff and people who don't have to deal with the, the mundane aspects of life and the hardships of life and who can you know, are comfortable enough like the, 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 the liberal types in, in the US and uh, who, who can just dream about humanitarian intervention because they don't have to uh, spend, uh, you know, they don't have to worry too much about where their next meal is coming from or where, how they're going to make the rent this month, you know. The more affluent section of American society, they're the dreamers who just don't, who, who ignore reality because they can. And they're the ones who are going to yeah. suffer most, you know. But um, on the cultural Marxism thing, it's kind of, there's an interesting, <clears throat> uh, or Marxism and the, the phrase cultural Marxism, which is the alt-right are accusing everybody who isn't them of being a cultural Marxist, you know, which is, I mean, it's they, they have wrong definitions for all sorts of things, but they basically see this as a, a destruction of traditional values by this mar- cultural Marxist ideas of uh, 
of, of it's basically it's, a vast left wing conspiracy. Yes, it's modernism. It's you know, it's it's a breakdown of of of, of gender identity. All this kind of stuff is happening. Um, it's represented by those liberal types who are just like nut jobs and they're ruining society basically, and they're engaging in social experimentation. But so that's that's what they're accusing. Uh, that's what they're against. This alt right and support, the supporters of Trump and and even Bannon and people like that are against this idea of uh, of the leftists' conspiracy to destroy the traditional foundation of, of Western society and all of the values, religion, you know, family, etc. Uh, modern art is thrown in there. You know, everything that's weird and not real, basically. It's kind of got a certain link between what's real, you know? I mean, the alt-right would say that gender fluidity is not real. You're making shit up. Freedom and democracy is not real. You're not exporting it. You're making shit up. You know, uh, America being the greatest country in, uh, in, the, in, in the world is not real for a large section of the population who don't know if they're going to be able to feed their children this week. Um, but there's an interesting parallel with and this is where Swift uh, kind of switches over to the fears and the argument of the lefties, of the liberals, um, is that during, in the lead-up to Nazi Germany, uh, or to, the, to Hitler taking power, the Nazis taking power, um, in the 30s in Germany there was a big issue, in Germany in particular, but around Europe as well, with what they called cultural Bolshevism. And cultural Bolshevism was pretty much exactly the same things encapsulated exactly the same things that people today complain about in culture, cultural Marxism. Of course, Marxism and Bolshevism are, you know, peas in a pod to a certain extent. Um, and it was Hitler and the Nazis who reeled against cultural Bolshevism and espoused traditional family values in Germany for Germans and all this kind of stuff. So the left sees this and says, well, history is repeating itself, you know, cultural Bolshevism, cultural Marxism, uh, a strong leader coming like Hitler, who's reeling against, uh, you know, progressivism and harking back to um, traditional values. And of course, what happened then, you know? But there's a problem. You, the analogy only goes so far, but you can't you can't just transplant uh, Nazi Germany onto today because uh, what Hitler did back then was he used this kind of push for traditional values in Germany for white white Germany for white Germans and, and then Lebensraum and he invaded the whole world and started a war, well, right? After officially ending democracy in Germany. Right, yes. So, but that's not necessarily a bad thing if everybody's happy with it, right? If everybody in Germany is happy with the, with the values that he's espousing and this is a guy who's going to put an end to all the kind of back and forth, you know, that kind of thing. You know? I point that out to say that, that that's not going to happen here. Richard. Well, no, but it's not going to happen and it's also not going to happen in the sense of uh, Hitler, Trump as Hitler going to invade, you know, well, he can't. Where's he going to invade Canada, Mexico? I mean, it's not the same. Uh, Hitler, Hitler was in, in in Europe, which is was you know dozens of distinct countries, and that could be invaded. And you could have a war in Europe on the landmass of Europe between sovereign states. Uh, if you transplant it over to America and try and say the same thing's happening, well, what's Trump going to do? Maybe he'll go. So he'll accrue power to himself like Hitler, become a dictator, abolish democracy, and then what's he going to do? He's going to start a world war by what? Invading, invading California. No, invading countries, right? Oh, he's going to... Maybe he'll invade Libya. Oh, no. Sorry, Obama already did that. Or maybe Syria. Oh, no, did that already. What about... No, Iraq's going to... The point being that what Hitler, what, they, what people in America, what progressives and liberals in America fear about Trump has already been done by Obama. 
when they say that Trump is going to be a Hitler. Sorry, Obama did it. So did Bush. Done. So what? What else? What new monster could Trump conjure up as as the new Hitler? The stuff that you blame Hitler for doing has already been done, and I include the demonization of Muslims and creating the conditions for which Muslims could be put in concentration camps. All done already. Not going to be done by Trump. Well, there's a there's another aspect of that too, and that's that. You know, you can take this comparison and say, well, you know, Obama has done these things already. There's also the fact, like we had an article up. Not just Obama, just to make the point, not just Obama, done since 9-11 by the people behind 9-11. Yeah. So we had this article up several weeks ago, um, one of the few that we've had up on why Trump is not Hitler, um, essentially pointing out that, um, you know, even if you take into account the similarities, um, the differences still are the things that make the difference. Because if you look at, at someone like Hitler, and, um, you know, taking into account all the things that we've already said, you know, on the show about um, in the last several minutes about Hitler and, and Nazi Germany. From the very beginning of Hitler's career, from the very beginning of the, uh, you know, the Nazi party, you had, you know, that's so from 1920 and from, you know, even before that. But when in 1920, when they put forward their like, you know, official policy for for the future, you know, through 1925, when Hitler released Mein Kampf, through, you know, so all the 20s, early 30s, the the official, you know, ideology of, of the Nazis was always crazy. Like, it was always over the top. Um, you know, it's, so from the very beginning, you know, they were, you know, Hitler was saying that the, you know, the, the, um, the epitome of, uh, or the, the, the supreme representation of the devil on earth takes the form of the Jew. Um, he was saying that blacks were, um, you know, black Germans were, you know, subhumans. And if you if you um, had any sort of like friendship with with black people, then you were degrading your, you know, G- your German heritage and this would end. And then so so when they came to power, blacks were banned from going to university. They were forced, uh, you know, there was forced sterilization. Um, but essentially, my point is just that. If you were to to read what the Nazis were writing in 1920, and then for the next 15 years, 20 years, there was no change in policy. There was no covering over how pathological they were. It was, you know, it was obvious for at least for, you know, um, <clears throat> someone not caught up in the hysteria, just how evil it was. You try right. you compare that to Trump. I mean, there's no comparison, even with Obama and Bush. You know, as as horrible as some of the, as horrible as their policies were and their their foreign wars they never went that far mm-hmm. to the point of actually riling people up to that to that extent where you would have like this this um you know genocide let's say within america i mean it's 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 a different story when it's some other country and you know people have no idea who who those people are or where they are i mean yeah just bomb them i mean I'll it's t- i'll it's, tell you what it's, analogy. Kind of, it's kind of different yeah Go ahead. i'll tell you what the analogy fits far better and it's in israel the Palestinians. Yeah. yeah, right there, right within Israel, within the within Palestine. I mean, that's the 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 Nazi. If you want to see where Nazism and its ideology is being recreated and lives today, uh, in terms of the the Nazi the the, the Nazi uh, attitude towards Jews and minorities and blacks and stuff, look to Israel and the Israeli attitude towards black black uh, Israelis or black 
immigrants from from Africa into Jews, basically, and uh, and, and towards Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Talking about preventing them from going to university, you know, basically forcing them to live in, in ghettos and persecuting them. That's where it's closest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we don't know. We have to wait and wait and see, right? As usual. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Don't have all the answers. We crystal. need a crystal ball that. Uh, Our crystal ball isn't working. It's all murky and stuff. Anyway, um, we need some we need some crystal balls made in America. Yeah, they're much clearer. Um, did, did we want to cover India? We have a. A few quick things to say about some of the developments we've seen there. We've talked a little bit about all of the hard power provocations we're seeing in Ukraine in uh, in attacking Donbass. We've seen uh, what looks very much like a very kind of covert war being uh, an overt war made against Russia and, and the uh, probable uh, assassinations of these um, ambassadors. And we also have this kind of a soft power uh, coup of sorts going on in India, which I guess first came to our attention a few months ago, where, um, oh, you know, uh, Prime Minister or President Modi one night said, OK, you guys have uh, a few days to uh, cash in all of your $15 uh, or $10, $10 rupee notes. Uh, we're doing it to... Uh, to cut out all of the corruption and, and black market money that that everybody uh, that all the criminals in the country are stashing, and um, and now you can only use uh, very large denominations of of the rupees. And uh, there there have been a number of developments that have come to light since then about uh, where these ideas even came from, um, and why they're being instituted. And I know we were talking a little bit about this before the show, William. Um, so what, what else does this seem to be connected to a number of things? It seems. Yeah. Well, first, um, yeah, we have been covering about the denominization going on in, in India and how they, they, they want to make it more digital, Mm -hmm. uh, digital currency. Of course, that leaves out a lot of the poor people since most of them don't have a bank account and deal in, in cash. So it's, quite an upsetting thing but you're not seeing a whole lot of backlash from the people of india they seem to be going along with that which is kind of interesting um yeah this this started out um quite a while ago and in fact it was only supposed to be introduced into one city but they ended up just oh well let's just do the whole country (laughs) It, it, it's, it, and it makes it look like it's just a grand experiment to see how it goes with one of the most populous countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been, it's part of a project catalyst is what they call it. It was commissioned back in November of 2015. And that was with India with the help of U.S. aid. And, of course, uh, it's not clearly evident that they're tied with the CIA or directly involved with that. But Sure they are. It, <laughs> but the fact is, it's prevalent that the CIA is a constant factor in USAID. Well, yeah, it's American, it's the State Department. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
on on that on that score, what I what I understand about that was last year they removed the one thousand and two thousand I think rupee note because of counterfeiting and that kind of thing. But they immediately introduced uh, they immediately replaced it with new ones. Yes, I believe so. Right, so they didn't take them out of circulation. They took them out of circulation yeah, temporarily, but then they re- replaced them with new kind of you know new types so that that are harder to counterfeit. Right. Yeah. But then there's this other component where you have the, this huge underclass who you know trades and, mm. and purchases things with with these smaller denominations that were no longer permitted to be used. Where they they had to, I think, they had to replace those too. They yeah. could. Right, uh, but the, the the project catalyst thing th- seems to be to, to basically to uh, digitize or to digitize the currency effectively to bring in uh, more credit cards. And, uh, right, cashless society. Cashless society, and I see a lot of people talking about this as, uh, "Oh, it's a cashless society uh, program." It's you know, this is they're, they're bringing cashless society to 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 India. But uh, the statistics I was reading on it showed that uh, about ninety percent of the Indian population still use uh, cash, still use paper money, other transactions. Um, so there's very few credit cards and debit cards in use in India. Um, so. I, I just didn't understand the people who were trying to say this was exa- uh, that they were trying to impose a cashless society in India because they've got a long way to go uh, to do that uh, because maybe maybe that's going to happen first in India but it would seem uh, kind of a bit illogical to start with India with such a uphill battle in that sense of removing getting everybody onto uh, credit cards of some description when in America for example and in, in in the Western world, in, in Europe, uh, you know, maybe in some areas, some people hardly ever touch uh, dollar bills or euro notes because they use so much, uh, so use plastic, so much use um, <clears throat> credit cards. So it seemed to me that if anywhere in the world is going to be the first to have a cash society, it's going to be in the in the so-called first world in in, in the U.S. And, and in Europe, which has much is much further progressed along that along that line. Mm-hmm. Well, there there does seem to be a huge um, business interest uh, inside of India. Uh, corporations and companies that are um, just working with Modi and uh, USA and the State Department to create the infrastructure. Mm. And uh, no matter what pain or chaos. Uh, going to a cashless system may uh, create for this uh, huge underclass in India. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it, it would seem more logical to introduce it to a Western country that that's already been acclimated to using their debit cards and, and mm-hmm. what have you. Um, but it it seems as though, but you know, it, it already it, has been introduced to the Western countries. Mm-hmm. We have it. This is what we're in it. Well, we use plastic we and gone. we use. Credit, debit accounts. Mm. It doesn't mean that the cash is completely banned, but I don't think that's the plan for India. It strikes me more that India is modernizing the way it does business. Right, to, to bring it into the Western yeah. Western world, basically, Western banking system, I, which is largely... I don't... Uh, uh, well, cashless. it is. Uh, wherever USA pops up, I'm always like, oh, what are you up to? But on the whole, I would say this is more like just more mundane than... Um, something 
nefarious, nefarious in itself, you know? India's modernizing, basically. Which isn't necessarily a good thing, but... Oh, well, well it in, would in this... because they got a lot of people in serious poverty. Well, if it, if it helps in, that, in this... but there's no guarantee it's going to help that, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you also have uh, in this particular article, the di digitization of India, uh, the author points out that uh, concurrent with this demonetization or, or this move to a cashless society or all of these uh, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, attempts to introduce um, uh, various uh, plans for, for vaccine and, and other types of, of things that would uh, hurt the population of India ultimately. Um, but yeah, I mean, on one level, you can argue that it, that it is an, a mundane Western development that the U.S. is uh, attempting in a in a very uh, nefarious way to uh, pull India over from its association with BRICS mm -hmm. uh, to to help uh, prop up the dollar um, and and help maintain its uh, status as a global reserve currency. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably closer and, to the uh, mark in terms of if you look at the BRICS situation. Uh, and, and the geopolitics of it, that that's probably closer to the reasons behind this, uh, <clears throat> this you know, uh, <clears throat> increase, the attempt to increase uh, the, large, the, the number of people using credit cards to get, to get people away from cash and onto cards and plastic and digitization uh, is probably, <clears throat> and with the US, with USAID being involved and the Americans being involved, it's probably got uh, motivated by uh, geopolitical concerns, if you know what I mean, in terms of um, where India, with its massive population, where its allegiances or where it's going to be bound to, effectively. I don't know enough about the economics of it, but if somebody looked into the actual economics of it, what that, what's going on behind the scenes there in terms of attempting to pull India or coerce India and tr effectively entrap it in a Western, into the Western banking system. Uh, and its people into the Western banking system rather than letting it fall into a, a sphere of influence of, of uh, BRICS or, or uh, a more Eastern, you know, Russia, China-centered uh, organization, you know, economic bloc. Well, in, in that sense, you, you can argue that it is a pretty nefarious plan because every country that comes under the thumb or influence of USAID and... Uh, and um, Banking influences uh, does seem to kind of fall by the wayside or, or get worse as a result. Uh, yeah. Even if it's argued that it's yeah, but it's for well for at the moment purpose. the basic statistics speak in India's favor. It's the only country on earth with almost double-digit growth rates. So I don't think we need to be worrying about the Indians. I think we let them just carry on what they're doing. Well, it would be interesting though, to get an Indian perspective, though. We might have might be able to get someone on the show who knows who's Indian and who knows the situation well. I can also speak to it at a geopolitical level. Obviously, yes, India's up for grabs, but um, it's it's kind of it's going to it's going to do a China in the next generation and uh, completely transform. So I wouldn't be too concerned about India. If I was a Westerner, I'd be more concerned about the West, the West, so to speak. In quotes. Do we have All anything right. else to add to that? On um, yeah, no, not me. No. I think on that uh, on that positive note.
Was that a positive note? I think it was a positive note. Oh yeah, I was an absolute. The positive future note. of the world is Indian and Chinese. Yeah, look to your look to your own issues. You know, uh, sort your own house out Westies before you start interfering in other people's affairs. Is the message? But of course, that would that would probably be the major factor that would solve a lot of the problems, concerns. You know, in the sense of if America would just wake up and say, "Listen, you know, all right, we'll take the words Yankee go home to heart." But uh, apparently they probably won't do that anytime soon. But um, we'll have to wait and see what happens. So I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Yes, we'll. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to our chatters and our listeners, and we hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week with um, another show topic to be announced. Thanks to Harrison, William, and Alan and Neely. See y'all. Have a good evening. Take care, folks. Bye-bye. Oh.